Welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? We are continuing our focus on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Last week, we were in Helsinki and looked at the table of sanctions options, what security assurances Russia is seeking, and what can we expect in terms of transatlantic cooperation and diversions. Today, we have moved to Paris, and joining me is George Voloshin. George is a Russia corporate intelligence expert and has authored many articles and indeed books that focus on geopolitics of Russia and the former Soviet Union. And also, importantly for this community, George is one of our course tutors for our Global Sanctions Certification, CGSS. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justine. So, George, let's just jump into this topic. It has been over three weeks since diplomatic talks to defuse the crisis in Ukraine began. But Russian troops continue to line the Ukraine-Russian border. Speculation continues to mount that we're about to see an invasion. The United States, the European Union and the UK are all preparing sanctions. Big Congress, sweeping bills coming from that side. Extremely strong messages from the White House. And even the EU has said no option is off the table. So unsurprisingly, the private sector within Europe and beyond is responding with great nervousness. George, just talk us through the EU-Russia trade relationship. How exposed are they to each other and what types of sectors are most exposed? Thank you. So first off, I think for us to understand the divergence between the US and the EU in terms of Russia sanctions, not only now, but also since 2014, when it all started, I think we should acknowledge a very simple fact that the EU matters to Russia much more than the US does. And conversely, that Russia matters much more to the EU than it does to the United States. So let's look at the 2020 figures for bilateral trade. So in 2020, Russia trade turnover was almost $219 billion. It's almost 40% of Russia's total. Although it has been declining since 2014, in fact, in 2013, trade stood at more than $400 billion. The EU is still Russia's main trade partner for both exports and imports. In comparison, if you look at Russia's trade with China or with the United States, it's much, much smaller. With China, it's only $100 billion. And with the US, it's even uh, smaller than that. It's only $24 billion in 2020. Although exports to Russia are dwarfed by its sales to and purchases from both the US and China, well, in fact, the US is the US largest export market, while most imports into the EU come from China, we should remember that energy is the key area of Russian-EU economic cooperation. So according to Eurostat, over 70% of EU imports from Russia are fuel and mining products, namely crude petroleum and natural gas. In 2020, Russia actually accounted for something like 44% of the EU's natural gas imports, and Norway was the second largest importer at only 20%. However, Russia also accounted for something like 25% of total petroleum imports into the EU, followed by the United States at only 10%. So clearly Russia is the leader in terms of energy sales to Europe. Meanwhile, Russia mainly imports from the EU machinery, transport equipment, as well as chemicals, which together account for like 65-67% of Russia's total imports from the EU. So in very simple terms, we can say that Russia uses a lot of cash that it gets from Europe for its energy sales, 
oil and gas and other minerals. You have also aluminium, you have copper, of nickel, etc. And uses that cash to pay for imports of equipment from Europe and very complex chemical compounds, including pharmaceuticals, most of which, by the way, are made in Germany. Gosh. So against all of that background and looking at the wide array of sanctions being floated, these are really broad. They include disconnecting SWIFT, sanctioning of Russian banks, restricting certain business activities, you know, sanctioning individuals. I mean, even in the past few days, it's been floated that President Putin could be sanctioned. Essentially, every tool has been put on the table. And, you know, we're going to look at this in our Global Sanctions Summit next week. We've got the White House joining us talking about what these options are. But ahead of that, I want to ask, you know, this from an EU perspective, where do you think European countries and businesses stand? Who is actually most exposed in terms of economic and energy ties? So first off, I think it's important to note that if there are more sanctions from either the US or the EU against Russia, there will be very clear, immediate, adverse impact on Russian-EU trade, and specifically on the businesses of companies that are heavily exposed to the Russian market. Unsurprisingly, you know, business lobbies in Europe have all been up in arms against more Russia sanctions, especially if they can create disruptions for trade flows. Just a couple of days ago, by the way, there was a conference call between President Putin and the Russian the Italian Chamber of Commerce, which went ahead despite last-minute calls from Mario Draghi and his officials to cancel the event because of the current situation with Ukraine. But interestingly, Russian-Italian trade was up by more than 50% last year, like of January, November last year, year on year, showing the importance of Russia for Italian industries and for Europe in general. Also throughout the years, Germany's uh, business lobbies have been also very much opposed to more sanctions against Russia, consistently critical of you know, a tough approach to, to Russia in general. Speaking of exposure and sexual exposure in particular, I think it's important to note that in the first half of uh, last year, for which we have data from Eurostat, Russia was responsible for more than 75% of total extra EU petroleum imports in only four EU member states, like I can name them, they, they are Bulgaria, the Hungary, Slovakia and Finland. But at the same time, as far as natural gas is concerned, Russian imports exceeded 75% of total extra EU imports in as many as 10 member states out of 27. So you have Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Estonia, Latvia, you also have Hungary, uh, Romania and Austria, Slovenia, Slovakia and Finland. And for Germany, which is Europe's largest economy, the dependence upon Russia in terms of oil and gas is like 25% and 50% respectively. So it's, again, a very high degree of dependence. You should also remember that of some you know, 60 foreign banks present in Russia, almost half are European, if also include the UK and Switzerland. Russia's top five trade partners in Europe are Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, Italy and France. And of these three, we have seen Germany, Italy and France being very active in recent years to maintain a delicate balancing act between Russia and the US, kind of trying to bridge the gaps between themselves and the US and trying to find some compromises in relationship with Russia. But I still think given what's been happening in Ukraine and over Ukraine, we currently see a much more resolve among European governments to maybe consider punishing crippling sanctions in Russia than we see within the private sector, which is traditionally historically opposed to any you know, radical moves. And recent statements from the German government, from the new German government, actually demonstrate that the governments in Europe pretty much kind of resigned to the idea of maybe 
imposing some tougher sanctions if things get out of control in coming weeks and months. That is such interesting context just to set out that interconnectivity between Russia and the EU and including specific member states, because that does have a huge importance for political appetite and what may be forthcoming. If we do see the implementation of sanctions, really determining ownership and control is going to be a core factor in how how wide ranging these sanctions are. You know, we certainly know Russian entities and individual holdings can be notoriously difficult to undertake diligence on. And, you know, we've also seen over the years they've become much more sophisticated and masking interests in assets. Therefore, if we do see a major figure or a state-owned institution or private bank sanctioned, just how difficult is it going to be to conduct the due diligence? Well, I think whenever you have a high-profile business person or a government official or even more than that, you know, a large corporation or a you know, state-owned company with lots of you know, subsidiaries, it's generally quite difficult to conduct due diligence on those targets. In terms of sanctions compliance, which kind of gets very often complicated in the AML compliance, there are a number of reasons for that. So first of all, large sanctions targets have you know, thousands of third parties which they have ownership stakes with which they deal for business, etc. So it's very difficult to actually to screen them all, identify them all by virtue of the 50% rule. Sometimes they have a lack of data, multiple layers of ownership and otherwise complex structuring, which impedes easy identification of uh, sanctions exposure. You also have a lot of recourse today still, despite you know, all this talk about the offshoreization, uh, a lot of recourse to low disclosure offshore jurisdictions to structure assets, whether for tax, asset protection or inheritance purposes. So very often you have companies from the Caymans, from the Bahamas, from the BVI, etc., which obscure ownership uh, even more. You also have under Russian law a number of legal mechanisms that allow you to obscure ownership. For example, a classic example would be a joint stock company with closed ownership. That means that it doesn't have to disclose ownership to non-shareholders. So there is no, no reports published uh, for the general public to see who owns what. Also, in April 2019, so kind of two years ago, the Russian government allowed both financial services companies and non-financial entities to withhold information under 18 specific categories, So, which include the full ownership structure. That means that it goes both ways, up to shareholders and down to subsidiaries. Management, foreign currency transactions, corporate litigation, financial investments, business counterparts, and so on. So this was done very explicitly you know, to shield Russian companies from the risk of U.S. secondary sanctions, so applicable to non-U.S. persons. And interestingly, there is no requirement to be under sanctions yourself if you want to take advantage of these different exemptions. For example, if you do business with a sanctioned counterparty, you may actually hide information about those transactions because you otherwise may be exposed to secondary sanctions uh, from the US. Another example is that banks that service the Russian defense sector, for example, those that lend money for military procurement purposes, may also hide information from the public about who owns them, their management, etc. So all of this kind of makes this all very difficult to do in terms of you know, sanctions compliance, due diligence, and effectively have lots of challenges, operationally speaking. Difficult indeed. And, you know, just thinking about the ownership and control, what can we learn from previous sanctions? Because, you know, this is not the beginning of this game in terms of sanctioning complex entities. And from your experience, where are we going to encounter the most challenges? Well, I think 
it will be most difficult to probably identify exposure for high-profile businessmen like you know, Russian oligarchs, Russian billionaires, as well as large Russian industrial corporations. Since 2014, when the OFAC modified its 50% rule, so remember that it was about aggregation of ownership, attempts have been made in Russia to obscure ownership even more. Let's take an example. Let's look at, for example, a large Russian public company. A Russian public company would normally disclose ownership and beneficial ownership in particular to the general public, to its investors. But at the same time, you know, very often you have Russian billionaires that own stakes in those companies through offshore jurisdictions, for example, through the BVI, through, you know, through uh, the Caymans, the American Virgin Islands as well. And what you see in the reporting that goes to the public is that you see the beneficial ownership stake. Like saying a billionaire owns 25% of a large industrial company. But you should remember that there is discrepancy between economic ownership and sanctions-related ownership. For example, a billionaire may own 50% of a company in the Caymans, 50% of a company in Russia. So economically speaking, the billionaire owns 25% of the Russian company. And that's what the Russian company will report to the public. But in terms of sanctions compliance, under the 50% rule, the intermediary company will be sanctioned as its own 50% by the billionaire. And the company underneath, the Russian company, will also be sanctioned because it's also owned 50% by a sanctioned company in between. So that's the challenge. If you have multiple layers of ownership that goes to low disclosure jurisdictions, you have problems with identifying sanctions exposure in a correct way. Although you will probably be aware of economic ownership. It gets even more difficult for privately held companies, which don't have to disclose even beneficial ownership to anyone. So there is a real challenge in terms of that. Another example would be in reference to the Katsa law of 2017 in the US, which punishes also non-US persons you know, for significant transactions with Russian SDNs, Russian SSIs. There is a special clause around you know, transacting with family members of SDNs. It's very difficult for some SDNs to identify their family members, to know exactly that they, this is a son or a daughter or a spouse. In case of control, which is a phenomenon under EU and UK law, it's even more difficult. It's very often challenging to identify close associates who may exercise influence over a company on behalf of someone else, either a PEP or an SDN, and especially to prove that, to prove that level of control, which is very often informal. I think the extreme cases when you have trusts involved, like a discretionary trust, the risk really goes up by several notches immediately. I mean, I remember you mentioned Katza 2017, and I remember when we saw sanctions come in in 2018, and we saw key figures being designated. You may have one individual being sanctioned, but the ripple effect and the numbers which fell under the ownership and control threshold was just phenomenal. You know, in thinking about the types of sanctions being imposed, one option being speculated upon is if access to the US dollar is cut off, but access to the euro continues. So, you know, what will this really mean if that does happen? Also, what will be the impact if we see the US taking a course of action, such as restricting dollar clearing, but the EU does not impose a similar provision? Okay, so if the US restricts uh, US dollar clearing for Russian subjects, I think the first turnaround, pretty technical one, would be to convert rubles into another currency, then to convert this other currency into dollars. But I think probably if there are such restrictions in place from the US, there will be also some language around you know, banning facilitation of sanctions evasion, namely through currency conversions, which escape the direct uh, ruble dollar route, but rather go through intermediary currencies. If the euro stays accessible to Russian subjects, I think 
the impact will still be felt from the loss of access to the dollar, but it will not be as acute as it would have been, for example, in 2014 and 2015, at the beginning of the sanctions period for Russia. Russia's trade with EU is mostly in euros, uh, quite you know, logically speaking. Of course, this trade will not be at risk if the euro remains accessible. Problems could arise with respect to Russian oil sales, uh, because oil is mostly traded in dollars. However, we should remember that since 2018 approximately, many Russian oil exporters have switched their trading schemes to alternative currencies. For example, if the dollar is no longer accessible, it's off limits to Russian oil companies, they have language in their contracts which allow them to use the euro or the renminbi or some other currency to be paid for their uh, oil supplies. Forgoing the dollar completely uh, from oil trade will be difficult for Russia, but it's not really impossible. Also, we should remember that Russia has been experimenting with de-dollarization for several years, so it's kind of renouncing the use of the dollar in most of its external trade. So, for example, in mid-2021, the share of the USD in Russian international reserves held by the central bank was only 16%, uh, whereas it was in 2014, 44%. That's a really large drop. The share of the euro uh, has also decreased uh, from like 40% in 2014 to about 32% in 2021. But at the same time, Russia has been able to ramp up purchases of gold for its international reserves, also using other currencies like the renminbi, which entered the Russian currency basket in 2015. So to put it simply, it's just the dollar. Uh, the shock will be immediate, but it will be manageable if the euro remains accessible. Plus, Russia will possibly find a way to diversify even further in you know, trade relationships with other countries. But people will probably suffer from not being able to you know, sell or buy in dollars. Problems will still be with liquidity access. So if this situation escalates and sanctions are imposed, it is clear that they're going to have a big bite, despite everything that you know we've said around US and non-US access by Russian market, sanctions will have a big bite. Thinking through impact, in your mind, how may Russia seek to sanction-proof their Russia-EU trading relationships? Just how are they going to protect themselves? Will Russia turn to counter-sanctions? And if so, how's that going to play out? Well, I think, to be honest, Russia can do very little on its own end to mitigate the impact of new sanctions. I think the initiative should come probably from the European side, because Europe is uh, the one to feel the impact most uh, in the Western world. For example, the EU might envisage some specific carve-outs from sanctions regimes to protect energy trade with Russia, including both oil and gas. You will remember probably that in 2014, when they imposed sexual sanctions on Russian banks and Russian energy companies. In the regulation, it was specified very, very clear that those sanctions were not applicable to EU-based subsidiaries of those Russian companies. Though so there was a clear carve-out at that stage already to kind of preserve economic relationships between Russia and its European subsidiaries and their European counterparts. I think it's a matter of probably of negotiation between member states where, as we know, there are divergent positions on the Russian issue, sometimes very dramatic, and also have a parallel negotiation between Europe and the US about what is feasible, what is you know, most efficient, and how to shield the European economy from any unnecessary adverse impacts of sanctions. I think despite nearly everyone's desire to be on the same page with the United States on this matter, it's always difficult to kind of define common ground on fundamental economic differences which exist by virtue of those historical relationships that exist for 
between Russia and Europe and don't exist for Russia and the US. An example to quote will be the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, we have seen all these controversies around uh, whether Europe is on the message or off the message regarding this. Regarding Russian country sanctions, I think experience shows very clearly that they have not been very much uh, very effective and have even been harmful to both Russia and the West, in particular to Europe. In 2018, the Russian parliament dropped a draft law which was aimed at criminalizing the compliance of companies subject to Russian jurisdiction, including local companies owned by European firms, with foreign sanctions. So I think the government clearly told the parliament that it was not a good way to shield Russian economy from sanctions. And so the equivalent of the EU's blocking regulation did not take hold in Russia as a result. As for the food embargo of 2014, it has been renewed continuously, but there is no plan to go beyond that. So I think probably everything must come from the European side in terms of any mitigation effects and measures. Yeah, and I think it's also really worthwhile keeping in mind just the fear among European and indeed US institutions who have a footprint in Russia that, that you know, they may be liable through the Russian courts, even with the whole Russian blocking regulation not taking off and, you know, the manner which potentially it could have done. There are still a lot of tools there that we may see them, them use. So that's certainly one that we're sort of following through. George, finally, as industry begins to look at how it prepares for a worst case scenario, and everybody is looking at that and taking it really seriously, a few words of advice, you know, what would you say that they should be doing right at this moment? Well, I think the key to that will be to do some contingency planning as soon as possible, to be prepared for practically any scenario among the most plausible ones. Uh, financial services firms uh, may be exposed in a significant way to Russia, you know, through corporate lending, trade finance, investment banking and wealth management services. They have relationships with many Russian oligarchs, other ultra high net worth individuals, have very often politically exposed, also large Russian corporations, as well as through investments in the Russian economy, in Russian debt, both corporate and government and equities. So I think companies should really think of practical steps to take to mitigate that exposure and be prepared for the worst. So first of all, probably identifying all of the above areas of exposure, which I just described, and uh, risk stress, test them under different scenarios. So review existing contractual and insurance clauses as applicable to understand options for early termination of contracts, withdrawal of insurance coverage in case of uh, a risk event materializing, alternative payment methods and included currencies, uh, other legal avenues that might help minimize potential losses and even liabilities. Uh, then identifying relationships that, for a variety of reasons, you know, including financial, legal, reputational, business strategy related, can and should be terminated now, whereas others probably can be capped and you know, watched very carefully. Then you should probably think about assembling an internal task force you know, comprised of various professionals at the firm to follow relevant developments in real time, like all the news, all the uh, regulatory proposals, legislative proposals, statements from the US White House, from the State Department, from the European Commission, etc., from the Council, adjusting sanctions scenarios are necessary based on those facts, making practical recommendations to senior management about what to do, engaging with external stakeholders like external counsel where appropriate, and advising frontline teams on customer relationship, customer management, and customer outreach and communications. I think uh, there is another area of um, risk for uh, Western firms, especially those that trade in goods, 
like industrial corporations that sell goods to Russia, which may be subject to even more stringent licensing requirements in the US or Europe, or to you know entire you know, blanket bans on imports to and exports from Russia. So they should also be very careful around what has been proposed, what is realistically doable, what is kind of unlikely, and what they can do themselves to prepare for, for those scenarios materializing. George, thank you so much. You know, we've gone into a lot more detail today and we've done that because our listeners have really been asking what should they be doing? How should they prepare for the worst case scenario? Please do remember our Global Sanctions Summit next week. We'll be looking at this issue in much more detail and sort of exploring the dynamics of how to prepare for sanctions if tensions escalate further. Thank you for listening. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. And George, thank you again. Having an input from Paris and an insight into that EU-Russia exposure is so very much appreciated. Thank you.